How can we flourish at work? Today I speak with Brent Orell. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Sabine Elchidiak, your temporary host. Alex is away on break, so I'll be filling in while he's away. Today, I'm speaking with Brent Orell. Brent Orell is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on expanding opportunity for all Americans through improved work readiness and job training and improving the performance of the criminal justice system through rehabilitation and prisoner reentry programs. Before joining AEI, Brent worked in the executive and legislative branches of the U.S. government for over 20 years. Brent is the editor of the book Rethinking Reentry, in which he authored the chapter Identity and Agency, A New Approach to Rehabilitation and Reentry. He's also the host of the podcast Hardly Working. A frequent contributor to the popular press, Brent has been published in Law and Liberty, Real Clear Policy, Real Clear Markets, and The Hill. He has a bachelor's degree from the University of Oregon. Brent, thanks so much for being on the podcast with us today. It's a great pleasure to be here. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, so have I. I think it's going to be a really good one. Uh, so Brent, our question today is how can we flourish at work? To explore this, it's probably best to start with defining what we mean and understanding that the problem is that you're trying to solve. So just to understand a little bit better, I wanted to ask you, you say that post-pandemic, the labor market is facing a worker retention crisis. What do you mean by that? Um, and how did you come to that conclusion? How did we get here? I just like to know more a little bit, a little bit more about that before we get started. Sure. I, yeah. I, I mean, <clears throat> we've been we've been headed down this path for quite a while. Um, every time that we have a prolonged period of growth in the economy, what we start to hear is we have a skills gap or we have a labor gap. We've got a problem. We don't have enough workers, or we don't have enough workers with the right um skills then we have a recession it kind of masks this underlying problem but the reality is given our demographic trends of uh aging and uh lower birth rates than than in the past um we uh, our our labor pool is if not actually shrinking it isn't actually shrinking it's still growing but it's not growing as fast as it used to and it's not growing fast enough to keep up with the demands um, of the economy. And what the pandemic did was accelerate that. It, 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 it's like we took a, a five-year leap or 10-year leap forward into the labor market of tomorrow, basically overnight. And that happened in large part because we not only did we have our normal aging out that was going on in the labor market, we had uh, a significant number of people who were closer to retirement age, they may have been in their late 50s, early 60s, who you know looked at their 401k balances, their retirement accounts, which were doing great because the markets were really up. And they said, you know what? I think I'll just go ahead and get out um, because uh, I'm at greater risk for COVID because of age. Uh, maybe I'll just... I'll just quit. Uh, And a lot of them did. And so when you look at sort of where the current shortage or the sources of the current shortage are, uh, it really falls into two main buckets and then about four or five other buckets that are not the main buckets, but they're not that uh, far off in terms of, of numbers from being one of the main buckets. So you have normal retirement. And then you have this accelerated retirement of people getting out early. And those are roughly equal, about 1.3 million workers in each one of those buckets. Then we've had a substantial slowdown in immigration. Uh, And that, uh, uh, as of like 2015 in the United States, we were getting about 2 million immigrants a year into the United States. And that's fallen by three quarters or more. Uh, you know, the the message of the Trump administration that you aren't welcome here, I think, really got through. Uh, and, and so we've seen a, a pretty rapid decline in immigration. We have people who are out of the workforce. It's not a large number of people, but it's a number of people who just said, I, I don't want the vaccine. And if you make me get it, I'll quit. 
Um, so we've had some of that. And we just had people with concerns about, you know, what it means to be exposed to COVID. Now, some of that, some of those groups are filtering back into the workforce. Uh, uh, I suspect, given the ter- economic turbulence that we're now experiencing, that some of those 401k and retirement balances that looked really good uh, uh, three years ago or two years ago uh, are coming down. And so some of those people who retired early are going to come back but they're not all going to come back. And so we're just in this very constrained place on top of which the economy has continued to grow. Right now, we need about 3 million workers and we've uh, to just to account for a growing population and a growing economy um, in order to get us to where we would have been minus uh, what happened during the pandemic. Uh, in fact, we just in the last couple of months crossed the line from, in absolute terms, uh, the the workforce in the United States is now where it was prior to the pandemic, but that still leaves us well short of where we should be in terms of the size of the economy. Well, when you've got all that additional work and all that additional economic activity going on, and you're dealing with the same worker workforce, what you've got is uh, a seller's market for workers, you know, all of a sudden there's two, three jobs per available officially unemployed workers and they have a lot of choice and incumbent workers are uh, selling their labor into a market in which employers are having to pay more. And so they're hopping, they're going, they're, there's been a lot of movement in the, in the job market. We've seen levels of quits that we've never seen before um, in the in the U.S. economy. Uh, and uh, that's just people selling their labor and going to the place where they think they can get the highest um, wage. So that puts employers into a, an awkward situation because you can only raise pay so much, right? You can only you can only compete on salary for so long before you price yourself out of the market or uh, you start contributing to an inflationary cycle. And I think we're seeing some of both of that um, uh, kind of going on. So there's a limit to what you can do with wages. So the good news is, and that's the sort of the thrust of the report uh, that, that we put out, is that Obviously, wages are extremely important um, in making employment decisions, but they aren't the most important things. And there are other things that people value about work that uh, employers can address at much lower costs, I think, than raising wages. Uh, So, and and that's really what this is about, is like, what are the other tools that, that employers have in their tool bags to um, to sort of slow this quit cycle down. So um, based on what you just said, I mean, I keep hearing these terms being thrown around uh, both in the United States and in Canada, things like the great resignation and quiet quitting. Like, can you tell me if these actually, what's actually mean and just elaborate on them a bit more? I mean, I think they're reflective of what you just said is actually happening yeah. in the workforce. Yeah, um, let's take quiet quitting first, which I think is, um, uh, I don't know if it's a thing, actually. Okay. <laughs> I, think it, I, I think it's, uh, th- there's a lot of like social media activity around this and people on Reddit and, you know, complaining about working conditions and, you know, quiet quitting, uh, I, I think in maybe Canada and in and, and the UK, they, they just call it work to rule. You know that you you just work up to whatever the the minimum standard is, and so people are claiming that that's what they're doing. You know, I, it's not that I'm not working; I am working. I'm doing my job. I'm just not doing more than my job. Uh, and that's uh, if that's happening. I think that's kind of a. a, a I wouldn't advise it as a professional strategy for somebody who wants not just to have a job, but to have a career because your boss needs to know that you're engaged and that you are willing to go above the minimum. I mean, who wants that in any relationship? We all want 
uh, relationships with other people in which we can count on them to really have our best interests in mind, just as we are keeping their best interests in mind. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a bad antisocial act- attitude uh, that if it exi- if it's actually going on and actually exists, I think it's really counterproductive in the long run. Um, the great resignation is what I talked about before, just in terms of um, people have a lot of opportunity right now, more opportunity than they've had in the past. And they've got opportunity in two ways. We stuffed the economy full of money and we stuffed workers' bank accounts full of money during COVID. And that's given people uh, an opportunity that many of them have never had in their entire lives, which is not to worry about living for the next paycheck. They've actually got some margin. So they're thinking more about what they want to do rather than what they have to do. And I, so I think that's that's part of what's going into the great resignation is people just saying, look, I'm, I'm going to take a little bit of time. Um, when you look at the statistics on this, what you see is that that's mainly a phenomenon among the college educated um, who, you know, uh, people often have regrets about uh, the jobs that they're in, don't feel fulfilled, don't feel t- attached to them. And think they might be able to do better, not just monetarily, but uh, in in other kind of social aspects of work somewhere else. And so I think that that's what's really, at least among the college educated, really driving uh, this great resignation where we have, and we have seen, like as I said before, just levels of quitting, uh, j- job quits that we've never seen since the, those numbers have been collected. Um, so I think this. It's both the economics of COVID in terms of the flexibility that it's given people and um, kind of a a rethink uh, about what people want to do with their lives. So obviously the first thing that might come to mind on how to retain workers is to just increase the wages. And you mentioned that a little bit earlier. Um, This is our argument, an argument our listeners might hear a lot about. People are just, just aren't paid enough to stick around at these jobs. Um, And, you know, you already started saying that that's not necessarily the case. Um, so employers did try that, I assume. Um, they also tried some other things to retain workers. Uh, can Can you talk a little bit about whether or not increasing wages has worked? Uh, maybe I mean, yeah. it's obvious that it hasn't since you, you've already mentioned it. But also yeah. they tried to do other things to retain yeah. workers outside of that. What, what have those been and have they been successful? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first thing to keep in mind is that wages, <clears throat> as I said, um, people take jobs and keep jobs for a lot of different reasons, uh, not just pay. And uh, we've got some survey data coming out, which hasn't been released yet, so I'm not going to talk in detail about it. But it really shows this, that when you look at the reasons that people are, uh, that contribute to people leaving their jobs, wages are really kind of not at the top. They're they're really middle of the pack that's really a middle of the pack issue. Um, workers want to be appreciated. They want to be recognized. They want opportunities to develop and advance. And then they want to make you, they want to make sure that the eight or more hours that they're spending every day, they're actually doing something that taps into their uh, their interests, their knowledge, their skills, their abilities, all of those things. When you have that dynamic in place and you have reasonable wages, people are much less likely to leave. Uh, They've got an entire package of reasons to stay in a job. And so what I'm saying is that if if we've hit some sort of a natural limit in terms of what we can do on the wage front, um, and I th- and I think in many ways we have hit those limits. Um, and I, I think that the inflationary, the wage, the inflationary effects that we're feeling right now are in part driven by wages, um, not not solely, but they contribute to that. We've hit some sort of a limit. Then you have to start asking what else. What else can we do um, to tap into the social um, benefit? that work provides and enhance that. 
So what employers have tried doing, and it's been in some ways kind of comical, uh, is let's do pizza parties. Uh, how about some Himalaya, pink Himalayan salt? How about, you know, and, and appointing, uh, you know, com- companies have gotten into creating chief happiness officers who are responsible for making sure that everybody on the job is happy. Well, good luck with that. Uh, you know, happiness isn't something that you sort of um, stamp on the outside. It's something that uh, develops uh, internally. But anyway, so there's been a superficial effort. Uh, employers, rec- many employers recognize this as a problem. They they know that work is about more than money. They recognize that this there's a social social challenges on the job that are making people more inclined to leave and and seek greener pastures. And so they're kind of coming at it in this sort of not very authentic way. Uh, those pizza parties are exactly what they look and feel like. They're manipulation, right? They are they are a substitute for substantive change uh, in terms of the working environment, you know. And, and honestly, who you, you can't eat that much pizza. You know, you've got to. You need you need some other uh, need some other nutrients in the uh, in the ecosystem of work to make it um, to make it appealing. And the way that that we've thought about it about this is thinking about this in sort of three interlocking cycles of activity that happen on the job. The first is that people need to be recognized as people, right? Uh, they need to know that when they walk through the doors of their company, uh, their place of work, that uh, their boss doesn't look at them and think of them as some sort of interchangeable widget uh, that uh, if you leave, I'll just pull Joe or Sally and put them in your job. They want to be recognized as, a, as an individual, as a person that, uh, and because they're a person that they're all engaged in balancing a whole bunch of different kind of needs and priorities in their life. What this comes out in the, in the survey data as is that they want is flexibility. They want the ability to balance their jobs against the competing demands that they face. And that can take a lot of different forms for older workers, big career workers, older workers. It's frequently flexible work arrangements, uh, work from home, uh, hybrid work, remote work. They want, they want the, they want permission to find ways of balancing, um, their lives. And they also want, and this is more relevant in the American context, I think, uh, they could use a little extra help, uh, in some key areas um, around childcare and um, other kind of work-related uh, 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 need uh, things that empower people to get get to work and, and be able to stay at work. So, so that's kind of the recognition phase. The development cycle is that people really need to be able to see a future for themselves and their jobs, and so employers need to be much more intentional about. Uh, thinking about career ladders within their companies to help and and making sure they're communicating that clearly to their workers so that their workers know what the next thing is for them, that there is a next thing for them in that job or in that company, in that organization, and that there's a, there is a, a set of qualifications that they need in order to get there. And then they need to, the employers also need to like, encourage the acquisition of those new skills. Um, There's uh, uh, another kind of development aspect with um, uh, the the issue of kind of workplace mentoring, which I think is underappreciated. People need to feel like there's somebody around them, typically above them, who is taking a particular interest in them in, in them and their career. And it's trying to provide some guidance and some insight into how do I maneuver toward 
the next thing? How do I get there? Uh, and 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 what do I need uh, in order to get there? So there's a kind of a mentoring component. Then I think finally uh, is around expression of of uh, interests, knowledge, skills, and abilities. Um, there's a, a psychological a psychological concept uh, called flow as it relates to work, and it's when we're working in tasks or on tasks that are a good and somewhat challenging match for our skills. Not so hard that they're unachievable, but something that really requires our concentration our uh, and the best of what we are able to deliver. Um, when people have that, they enter the state of flow where they're not aware of the passage of time. And anybody who has ever been in that situation knows what I'm talking about, where you look up at the clock and 90 minutes have passed and you were not aware uh, of the passage of time. That's when people achieve this sort of state of flow. So that's not, you know, that's not every day. That's not every moment of every day, but people need to have that level of engagement, I think, in their work, if they're going to be satisfied with it. Um, over the long haul, they need to have that experience of, wow, this really is drawing out of me what I'm best able to do. So when you put all those things things together, the recognition, the development, and the expression, you put people into a positive cycle um, where they can make longer-term commitments um, rather than um, always looking for the exit. And I will say that one of the things that we're seeing now is a lot of people who have been hopping from job to job are having some regrets. You know, they things were better than they thought they were in their in their previous jobs. Um, and so, we, giving people just a little bit more reason to stay uh, is actually in their interests, in your interests, and in the company's interests. So the steps that you were just talking about, I think they're really interesting. And um, in the report that uh, I read in preparation for this, that I'm going to cite in our show notes, um, you, you're advancing something called human dignity-centered employee talent acquisition and development. And those three steps are part of that. And I use the term human dignity a lot in your research on this. Um, yeah. It's not something that you think about automatically when you're talking about employment and workers and wages and, and everything we're talking about here. Yeah. What does it mean in this context? Why is it such an important part of the conversation here? Yeah, so we, we typically have a kind of a reductio ad economicum uh, in terms of the way that we think about work. It's all about uh, an economic exchange. I, I provide my labor, I get my pay. And I think what that skips over, um, in addition to, you know, that, that there is social, the social nature of work, um, is that um, work is integral to what it means to be human. Um, we, you know, we are the only animals that, that do this. We are the only species that organizes itself in this way and that draws on our social nature, our need for social connection, and turns it into a market, right? There are all sorts of animals that herd together. There's there's no other species that works together um, and creates the market. The invisible hand of Adam Smith is... Uh, a, a, a sometimes sinister representation of the social and economic exchange that's going on naturally between people. What Smith talks about, you know, we are we are built to um, to truck barter and exchange with one another. We do it naturally. This is who we are as as people. It is integral to our dignity because uh, in 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 the Western idea, and uh, or in in sort of Western philosophy, um, each person contains within themselves certain rights, and they also have this capacity for labor and for creation of value, 
And we believe because of that, that they also have a right to the benefit of that, you know, uh, of that product of their labor. Uh, and, um, you know, this is the, this was the, this was the issue of the American civil war. Can it be just for one man to wring their bread from the, uh, the, the sweat of another? Uh, and the answer is no, um, it cannot be just. Um, and, and so we have, uh, labor has always free labor has always played such an important role in our conception of human dignity. Um, uh, so, what I'm trying to do, I mean, we, that's a lot of words to describe kind of simple concepts that reside implicitly in our thinking. You know, we don't think actively about them. And what I'm trying to do is try to get that out of the backs of people's minds and into their prefrontal cortex, where they actively consider what this means. Um, and structure, begin to think about how to structure the workplace in a way that uh, that takes this the the centrality of work to human dignity seriously, uh, and says that a human person has value not just in what they do, but who they are uh, beyond what they they have value beyond what they can produce. That idea of value beyond productive use is absolutely critical to uh, our understanding um, of rights, uh, the human beings as bearers of natural rights. And it and we've gone to tremendous lengths to enshrine that idea of dignity of the human person as a bearer of natural rights in a variety of contexts including work. That's why we limit the work week. It's why we don't permit child labor. It's why we insist on minimum safety standards um, because human beings have value beyond what they produce. Um, to get to kind of a fuller vindication of that dignity, is what the focus of this paper is. What we want to do is then say, let's move beyond the minimum standard and really think about work as a human activity and, and a humane activity um, so that people are fully recognized um, as human beings in their jobs. The dignity cycle that I talk about is just a way of uh, reinforcing uh, recognizing and reinforcing this idea that, you know, when you're dealing with a human being, you're dealing with something pretty special. I think that's a really interesting project. I think at this point we're going to take a break, but when we get back, I want to talk to you more about human dignity, the history of all this, uh, social exchange, and of course, how Adam Smith ends up playing a role in all this. <laughs> so that's what we'll talk about when we get back from the break. Can't wait. Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Peter Jaworski, Randy T. Simmons, and Vincent Geloso. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Brent Orell today. And um, before we get started on everything I, I said earlier uh, about what we're going to talk about in the second half, uh, I just wanted to talk about a survey that you ha you mentioned in the, in the report that uh, we're talking about today. Uh, you said a survey that shows why Americans are saying they're leaving their jobs. Um, what are some of those reasons? I'd like you to go through a few of them, uh, if possible. Um, what, what the workers are actually saying when these pollsters are talking to them? So uh, when you ask people why they're leaving, um, the, uh, uh, leaving their jobs or why, uh, and it's helpful in some ways to look at it from the reverse angle and say, why do they stay uh, in their jobs? Um, 
what they what they tend to fall back on immediately is they'll, they'll kind of brush it off and say pay. Um, but then when you dig a little deeper, what you find is that pay actually turns out to be a, uh, a proxy for a cluster of other issues um, related to their relationships at work, um, whether it's with their supervisor or with coworkers, um, or with colleagues. Um, if people are, are satisfied with their relationship with their uh, their boss, if they feel appreciated, if they uh, feel like they've got opportunities to learn and to grow, if they have good relationships with their coworkers, their, um, they are all of those things contribute to a, a a lower likelihood of people quitting and moving on. Uh, and what that what that says to me is that we have undervalued kind of these social aspects of work. In the uh, in the United States, we spend about six hundred and eighty billion, fifty eighty, I can't remember. Uh, companies spend about six hundred and fifty billion dollars, six hundred eighty billion dollars a year uh, on the cost of turnover. Uh, they spend on recruiting, uh, on advertising, recruiting, onboarding, um, all of the costs associated, you know, the lost productivity that goes along um, with with turnover. That that's that's getting up into some pretty serious money. Um, by contrast, they're spending around one hundred and sixty five billion dollars a year on retention. Uh, and. While we don't, while we don't want, what we don't want to say is take all that money that you're spending on recruitment, talent attraction, and spend it on retention. Uh, but there's clearly a better balance to be struck there. You know that some significant but not overwhelming investments on the retention side um, would probably end up paying for themselves in terms of. How much it costs, how much the re- the recruitment costs are when people quit. Uh, so that's that's the um, that's kind of the way that that I've been thinking about sort of the economic case for why we should be doing more in this area to slow down this churn. Um, I think it it it's a benefit uh, to workers. It's also a benefit to employers. Uh, it's a benefit to the entire economy to um, to try to get a handle on the problem. Yeah, so I, I want to read a quote from the paper <clears throat> that we're talking about. So in answer to this, you say, by extension, it appears that workers are seeking genuine concern, good leadership, pathways for advancement, meaningful work, and sustainable expectations from employers. So mm-hmm. um, based on that and everything you're saying, this is really very interesting to me. There's this tendency to think workers who aren't working for like an activist group or something are just going to work to make some money and go home. Uh, this, yeah, the study is showing that a job is so much more than that for people. I find that really interesting. Although it's obvious why, like, you don't want to be in a toxic workplace. Obviously, nobody yeah. wants that. Um, you know, that's a good reason for somebody to leave money on the table and go somewhere else, yeah. even if it means they're getting paid less. Like, nobody yeah. wants to be in that environment. But that's the baseline, right? It seems to me after right. reading your report, it isn't just about the toxic workplace. It's like so much more than that. So people are actually leaving money on the table, in your opinion, to go to places that give them those things that you're talking about. That's so interesting to me. <laughs> and so exciting. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I think that, well, I, obviously you can read the stories about people who, uh, you know, they were working in Silicon Valley 60, 80 hours a week, and now they're, you know, they're professional woodworkers, you know, that like they make this complete switch. They take a lot less money, but they just want, they want less stress. We really, I think our challenge is from a vocational standpoint is that we really only have one model of success uh, in work. And we make that about money. So it tends to drive people toward not just their work choices, but their educational choices as well. 
And I think it totally skips over. Uh, this is, we've talked a lot about what employers need to do. This is something that workers need to do. People need to take much more seriously this idea of their own vocation in life. Uh, you know, what are they actually built for? Um, what are the trade-offs that they're willing to make in order to have a, a job and a career in which they really feel like they're bringing the best of themselves um, into their work? Uh, the way it is now, the way we focus only on money, I mean, it's, it's kind of like Adam Smith's uh, the, the Son of the Poor Man, uh, um, parable in theory of moral sentiments, where the the son of the poor man sees this great wealth and and makes it his life's mission to acquire it, you know, and he acquires all this property and he acquires uh, all this wealth and what he what it brings him ultimately is anxiety and worry um, that that this is the uh, this is the price of wealth. Wealth has a price. And we never stop really to actively think about the price of wealth. And honestly, thank goodness that very few people do, because it's what actually pulls the economy forward, right? Uh, <clears throat> but at the level of personal happiness, we should take that idea a lot more seriously, that uh, that the money and wealth that we acquire in life um, is not the thing that ultimately provides satisfaction. Smith said, you know, good stoic Smith said, you know, tranquility of mind is the objective of life, you know, not, and, and the acquisition of wealth tends to run directly against that, you know, that idea. Now we still have to, strive and we still have to provide for ourselves and our families. I'm not saying everybody, please quit your jobs and go off to a commune. That's not my point. But my point is that you need to find ways of balancing. Everybody needs to find ways of balancing kind of their, um, their economic imperatives with who they are as a person. Uh, they need to take, they, not only do employers need to take dignity seriously, Workers need to take dignity seriously um, when they're making decisions about, you know, where to go to school, what sort of career path they want to plan, uh, to really be open to different models of success in life where perhaps your wealth ends up being tied up in relationships um, rather than just in dollars. Um, so that uh, <clears throat> that's kind of my uh, kind of my thinking on it. So which leads us to your argument um, that employers have to shift their perspective regarding the meaning and purpose of work. And you mm -hmm. talk about that in the context of economic exchange inevitably being a form of social exchange. Can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I, again, it's just this, um, because we have this one model of success, which is economic in nature, uh, you know, who basically who dies with the most toys uh, that that's our model of um, a successful life, typically, for, um, and and so we're we're drawn into this pursuit of that, uh, and and what we really need is a more balanced perspective on um, how to get uh, how to how to get to the other goods of life. Uh, from the on on the employer side, I think this gets expressed as a concern for the work my workforce as an, as an employer, a concern for my workforce that extends beyond uh, the objectives of uh, the profit making objective of the firm. Right? Uh, we can't um, we can't sustain ourselves as a business without paying attention to the human capital that makes our business possible. Uh, and um, this is, there's a quote in the report from, uh, from Lincoln, uh, from his first message to Congress, where he's kind of, he's trying, he's developing his rationale 
for the civil, you know, the war to end slavery. And he says, labor is prior to and independent of capital. Capital is only the fruit of labor and could never have existed if labor had not first existed. Labor is the superior of capital and deserves much the higher consideration. Um, so that's the pers- perspective shift that we're that I'm and that I'm pressing for here, which is your workers uh, for a company. Your workers are not just uh, inputs; they're not just uh, another thing that you buy in order to produce what you need to produce in order to make what you need to make. They have uh, an intrinsic value, an innate value on their own. And it's part of your responsibility, I think, as an, as an employer to take that into consideration as you build your workplace. Uh, you need those people to do the best job that they can. And you, in order to get the best out of them, you need to invest in them and not just sort of access them and their labor to get where you're trying to go. On the other side, as I said, this isn't just something that employers need to do. Employers don't take this seriously in large part because I don't think workers take this seriously. They've bought it. The workers have also bought into this model of wealth acquisition as being the end, uh, the end all. And um, purpose of life is broader, I think, than that. That Adam, that um, Adam Smith, the <laughs> that uh, Abraham Lincoln quote, I had never read before. I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was really interesting, um, and I do want to talk to you a little bit more about the history of this in in American history in a second. But before we go there, uh, another person who talks about this, uh, and you've you've already pointed to him a couple of times in our conversation, is Adam Smith, uh, and he talks about exchange. And you know, Smith is always often looked at as somebody who's glorifies greed and who just wants to like, you know, you're looking at the bottom line and like people don't matter. It's just profits matter. Um, you know, that isn't, that's not true. (laughs) If you, if you read, if you read what he says and like in this context, what do you, what is he trying to say? Uh, it's such a misconception of Smith and one that I shared, uh, until I actually sat down and read him, uh, a little bit, um, and realized what a humanist, Adam Smith was uh, or is in his writings. Um, you know, his, uh, I, I helped to develop a uh, kind of a reading group curriculum. It's available on our website. If anybody wants it, they're welcome to it. You can download it. It's free, a reading group on sort of understanding the works of Adam Smith, and it's called Invisible Hands, more than one hand. Smith's work points to kind of, um, this is what I mean by work being a uh, economic exchange, being a subset of social exchange. Um, Human beings are built for the social exchange. They require social exchange in order to develop um, as people. Smith captures this beautifully in terms of his ideas around the impartial spectator and how we develop a moral conscience. We don't develop it on our own. It's not, it is innate to the species, but not to the individual. The species, the human species, when we have children, um, we are engaging them in a call and response that helps them to begin to understand what's, what is normative. Um, what is good, um, what things we ought not to do as well as what we ought to do. And it's this very gradual um, perspective and it's all our uh, very gradual development in the life of a human being. And it, and um, it happens um, so slowly that we're not even aware that it's happening. Uh, it's like, uh, I often think of it as people just dropping grains of sand into a bucket you know, you don't see it, you don't see it, you don't see it, and then pretty soon you've got to have a bucket full of sand um, because there's there's the, the slow, steady um, uh, accumulation of these social interactions um, that build that capacity within us. Well, the market is really just a 
a, a an extension of that process, right? It's also about exchange between people and the norms that guide market exchange are the norms that we learn in the social side of our development, right? It's not okay to steal. It's not okay to cheat. Uh, you know, that there is sanction, both formal and informal sanction, for breaking these norms uh, in the marketplace, just as there are sanctions for breaking the norms in the social sphere. So uh, the curriculum is called the Invisible Hands because it points to this idea that what we see in the economic realm is just an extension of what we see in the social realm, that markets are just uh, human exchange taken up to a macro level. And now that we're talking about Smith, maybe we'll go a little bit further in history as well. And in, in your report, you talk about the history of this uh, in, in American history. You claim that a recognition of human dignity in the workplace isn't new. There is, I think that it would be attractive to a lot of people to think that it is new, that like, oh, think, we can't retain workers. We have to think differently mm -hmm. about this this is a new thing like back in the day it was all about profits but now we have to start thinking about people so that might be an attractive conclusion to to take from mm -hmm. this but it seems like it's not the right one and it's actually something that can be found all throughout american history can you expand on that i think it's all it's not just american history it's really the history of the west mm. uh, that has kind of developed uh, over centuries of uh you know that the human person um, is a bearer of rights. Uh, one of those rights is to uh, the fruit of his or her own labor. Um, slavery is wrong. Uh, when when employer we've decided as a as a Western world, when an employer uh, seeks to extract too much from a worker, that's also wrong. And so we place boundaries and limits on working conditions uh, in order to sort of build up and sustain. Um, I think part of the challenge is that the social mechanism that we're talking about that underlies the market has been subject to kind of erosion over time. Uh, it, it, in my view, and I've written some on this in other reports, uh, this is mainly the product Pardon me. This is mainly the product of uh, 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 of problems within family structure, and this is true across the West. Children that are born into families where there is only one parent, or maybe there's a divorce—not true in death, in the case of a death, but in, but where families either break apart or never form the children of those families just don't do as well um, uh, uh, either as children or as adults. Um, this is, it's controversial for some, but I think the social science on this is inarguable. Uh, kids uh, born into single parent families have more problems in school. They have, uh, more problems with the criminal justice system. They have more problems with substance use. They have more problems across the board. Uh, and I think as uh, the the family unit um, has come under increasing stress, we've begun to see the social deficits that then get reflected into um, uh, society at large uh, and and actually turn up in the workforce. You ask employers, what are they looking for um, in workers? Uh, they'll, they'll give you a list of, of 10 things that they're looking for, and the first eight have nothing to do with any kind of technical skill. They're all about um, the social capacity of the worker. Uh, do they communicate well? Uh, can they collaborate? Are they honest? Are, do they work well in teams? You know, these are the things that even our high, highest high-tech employers say that they're most noticing are absent uh, in the workforce are these social attributes rather than technical attributes. All of our educational activity, on the other hand, is focused on the, on the acquisition of technical skills. A uh, bunch of, you know, it's back to school 
in the U.S. I assume it's the same in Canada. But a lot of data coming out right now about what people are majoring in these days. And there's been a collapse in people seeking majors in the humanities uh, and explosive growth in uh, technical fields. And uh, so uh, we've got the social deficit. Our employers are telling us this is the problem. And then we're saying, here, here's some more technical skills um, to go with your social deficit. Those, those technical skills are not going to solve the underlying problem. The dignity at work framework is it kind of puts that right at the center and says, if we want healthy functioning businesses, we have to have healthy functioning employees and they have to be supported in social ways and not just economic ways in order to have that, right? So that's the that's the through line to this is that we've we have problems in social development. Um, that Smith, I think, would in- immediately inde- identify as a problem in the impartial spectator mechanism, uh, and and uh, and we need to be focusing on helping people to acquire those capacities if we want them to succeed economically. So, before we go to our formal wrap up, my last question to you is. Uh, I think a focus on human dignity seems like morally a good idea. It seems like a good argument when it comes to retaining people in the workplace. But what are the costs and benefits to an employer's bottom line at the mm-hmm. end of the day if they were to do what you're saying here? Uh, um, and where does the cost, where the law of diminishing return come in here? So I, I want to share one, and it's not an anecdote. It was actually a story from, uh, I think it's from the New York Times, about a mining company in South Dakota that was trying to figure out its workplace morale issues and trying to figure out what they could do differently. And they, um, uh, uh, most people have probably heard about the kind of the five love languages of uh, human relationships where some people are gifts people and some people are words of affirmation and some are uh, acts of service. You know, that everybody has a language in which they they know that they're being loved by their family member or their spouse or whatever. Well, they they also the same people also wrote a book about the languages of of appreciation at work. And uh, what this company did was that they took that book, they they persuaded their workforce, and these, these are these are guys in hard hats. I mean, these are people doing hard physical labor, not university. Um, you know, uh, campus life administrators. These are these are people who are, you know, tough guys and gals. Uh, and they, but they had them do an inventory to identify where they where they fit in that matrix of appreciation. What is it that was meaningful to them in terms of appreciation? And then what they did was they put stickers on everybody's helmets according to what the result was for them so if it's gifts that make the difference for you if it's words of affirmation you've got a sticker on your helmet so that your coworkers know that if they want to connect with you this is the way to do it right this is how and it's it had just a remarkable impact on the morale of the company uh and, you know, at first, you know, it's rolling their eyes, everybody's rolling their eyes, and, you know, this is ridiculous, <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, we're, you know, we're roughnecks here, we don't need, you know, we don't need that, you know, and it just turned instantly, you know, it's really hard to compliment people too much, this is a psychological principle, like, affirming people, it just, it just pays huge dividends, Um so not everything that we're talking about necessarily means a big cost to employers. The cost is in attention, not in dollars. It's paying attention to people and trying to figure out what's meaningful to them. Uh, and then building a workplace that's set up to recognize that um, uh, as, a, as a key factor. That's cheap. That's not, I mean, it, it, it relatively cheap, especially compared to wage increases. Uh, you know, you can do a lot um, 
at a kind of a low cost. Now, having said that, there is cost associated with this. And it's also not just cost in money, but cost in attention. Companies have bottom lines that have to be met, payrolls that have to be met, uh, uh, customers whose orders have to be fulfilled. Um, and sometimes, perhaps most of the time, those issues have to come first because it's a matter of survival for the business. I think the problem is that um, that it becomes the only thing that matters, uh, that those concerns about the pro- of profitability become the only thing that matters. And that cannot, that's unsustainable, right? You, every employer knows right now how valuable their workers are because they're having such a hard time getting them. Um, and, and what that should be telling them is that their workers are valuable all the time, right? It's not just a labor shortage. They're losing money by not paying attention to this, um, to this issue. So what I would say is absolutely, you know, businesses are mission oriented and they need to be, um, but they also have to balance that against paying attention to their workers who, in Lincoln's words, they're what make everything go, right? That, this is the thing. This is the basis of, of all of this wealth and all of this productivity as human beings. Uh, and the market is made up of human beings. So again, we're trying to get this. Everybody understands this, right? We need to get it out of the back of their heads and get it up here, not so that it we reshape the world uh, in this new model, but simply that we become aware of the, the reality once more. So Brent, we've talked about a lot today. Um, let's try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you now, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on how we can flourish at work? Well, I mean, it would. I think it would depend on whether they are a business owner, an operator, or whether they are a member of a company uh, as a, a member of staff on a company. Uh, I hope that if it's a business owner and operator, that they come away with a greater appreciation um, for the role that people play in the success of their businesses. And uh, and an earnest uh, an earnest desire to invest in those people for their sake and for the sake of the business. Okay, so if you're an employer, that's what I'm hoping that you get out. From an employee perspective, what I'm hoping is that workers um, take themselves more seriously when it comes to their interests, their knowledge, their skills, and their abilities that uh, their human capital is what our prosperity is built on, that it needs their attention, that it needs their development, that, uh, that, and that the things that they love in life, the things that they're interested in for their own sake, that really matters in terms of their happiness on the job. And that they need to seek ways of identifying it and then developing it because it will be good for them and it will help their company. These are reciprocal relationships. Um, they're not, it's, uh, it's not a, a, you know, we advantage employers over workers or workers over employers, but these are reciprocal relationships that need to be nurtured. Brian Orell, I learned so much from you today. Thank you so much for chatting with me. I really appreciate your time. Well, it's my total pleasure. And I look forward to talking with you again and hearing what the reaction is from your audience. Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Alchidiak, and Eric Sikang. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Vopenford. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. 
Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Sabine Alchidiak. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. 